Good evening, Darius. Good evening. This is our first, um, you know, weekday recording. All good. Um, got a little sidetracked, uh, but today, um, Darius, before I, sorry, before I jump into it, full disclosure, I just got off work. He got off work not too long ago. A little flustered, different environment, different setting. Different time. Exactly. It's okay. Exactly. Yeah, but we're going to do this. Okay. Before I jump into it, Darius, what are you wearing on the wrist uh, today? Submariner. Submariner days. Very nice. Uh, no date. Submariner days. <laughs> it's a no date. It's 11 40, 60. <laughs> I love that watch. Uh, have a real thing for Submariners. Don't know if I'll ever own one. Uh, but today, I'm, I'm going to jump into it as well. I'm wearing my trusted uh, Hamilton Pilot Pioneer. Nice and small, just slides under the wrist. I don't even notice it. Yeah. So I'm going to kind of, you know, take take the charge here. Right now, <laughs> right beside me, actually, I have um, my first my first W from from uh, Foot Locker. I never usually hit on Foot, Foot Locker. I don't hit on sneakers. Um, before I get into the shoot, do you ever like hit on those sneakers? Like those those I, places? I never. Are... I never get those ever. I <laughs> want them all the time. But never. <laughs> so I was lucky. I'll, I'll kind of run through my setup for those that are listening. Basically, four devices. Two laptops, two phones. Uh, laptop um, one basically didn't work. Laptop two, basic, uh, I, well, I shouldn't say didn't work. At first, already, you know, declined. Two, um, you know, it was loading. Phone number one, which is my phone, actually hit immediately. And then, Ooh. yeah, I know. I went to check out right away, and I was like, "What the fuck is this? How it works?" Um, and then afterwards, you know, phone number two also didn't hit. So out of the four, hey, it's pretty good you luck. Got one. I got, I got one. So let me, let me pull this up right now. Pretty excited. Boom. He's doing this on video to me, and I want these shoes too. <laughs> the worst. Sorry, I know, I know. I, I had a few friends that are, oh, were also going for it, and holy shit. They did not get it. All right. Bam. Mocha Ones. Mocha Ones is the shoe. Sorry, I'm just too too uh, too excited to even talk. Mocha Ones is the shoe that I ended up hitting on uh, Foot Locker. Uh, got my size in 10 and a half. Um, looking at this right now, and I'll be honest, I have never owned a um, OG Jordan 1 High. Never. So good. I know so you, good. you have a pair of Chicago's, right? Yep. Yeah, I'm looking at it right now. Okay, first impressions. Um, are these overhyped in terms of Air Jordan 1? I'm going to say yes. Uh, I, I think so too. Yeah. Uh, materials, and everyone talks about it. I like saying fabric more. Uh, the fabric everywhere isn't the best leather, which is going to be honest. Uh, the suede is nice um, over here. So I see, I wish we were on video, but we're not. Uh, All right. Right here, but you know, it's a decent shoe. Is it $225 yeah. worth? I don't think so, but it's a damn good colorway. And I think I picked this up and I really wanted this because the Chicago, while I love it and I really want the Fire Red Fours, um, it doesn't speak to me. I don't really have a connection to it because I'm not my brother's age. He's 10 years older than me. So he grew up with Jordan. So that makes sense in my mind. And he's seen him play a lot. For me, I just see it more as like, oh, that's iconic and that's art. For this, I literally see this working with a lot of things in my closet. Yeah. And I love coffee for my life, so I had to try to pick it up, and I'm glad I did. Hot take, I would, if I had those and Travis's, I would wear those more. Ooh, I, I would agree. Hey, there's actually a little um, a mark on the shoe. Sorry, I'm just looking at this right now. Quality control. I mean, for $225, eh. 
but not eh, whatever. Yeah. They're probably making several hundred thousand pairs, like whatever. Yeah. Okay, I'm gonna put these away now. Um, going back from to your take, you said if you had um, either the Mocha ones or the Travis Scott ones, uh, you would wear the Mochas more. Why is that? One less hyped, and like you're not wearing like two grand on your feet constantly. <laughs> yeah. Um, two, they actually upsized the swoosh on the outside, like the the lateral side of the Travis one. Mm-hmm. They upsized it, and I think it's a bit too like aggressive aggressive and it's like disjointed with the shoe because mm. um, it's reversed right i think it's a bit disjointed yeah so visually i think the mocha one looks better nice and the color blocking i like the color blocking over here yeah 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 i like the color blocking too both are good shoes if you have the travises then like congrats and but i think the mocha ones as a shoe like in a vacuum better shoe I would I would have to agree. I mean, I didn't try for those Travises, but these are really great. I'm excited to get them on feet. These are not going to be <laughs> for investment. I'm going to wear these guys. Can't wait for them to uh, to age. Another shoe I talked about um, a little while, not a little while back, just a few moments ago, is the Fire Red 4s. Um, your thoughts on those, Darius? Do you like them? Do you not? Is the color blocking for mm. you? Do you not like 4s? Fours are okay. Um, I think they're too aggressive. Like all red. Nah, nah, nah. Gotcha. Nah. I'm I'm thinking about it. I I like the fours when they're a little more worn out. That's just my look. Uh, but really crispy. I'm like, eh. Yeah, it's just meh. Yeah. So I mean that that's the pickup. Pretty excited. Maybe I'll, maybe I'll, my first video will be on on these mocha ones. Maybe I'll just styling talk, maybe wear I'll just, and tear. Yeah, maybe I'll just talk shit about it and see how mad the community gets <laughs> and get canceled draw, right draw away. Exactly. Uh, one thing I do have, um, I'm going to be honest. Um, one thing I do have, I do have um, Jordan One bits, and within the sneaker community, I know it's such a big thing. There's like haters for it, and then there are people just, that just don't really care for them, or just like wear what you want. Darius, I want to get your thoughts really quickly. What are your thoughts on the on the Air Jordan 1 mids? I think the Air Jordan 1 mid is okay. I don't like it when they do, um, like, original colorways, OG colorways, and just sort of take away part of it and just say, like, this is a new shoe. Um, case in point, Chicago 1, white heel Chicago mid. Yeah. It's like... They're actually up there. <laughs> Yeah, but I know. It's like, uh, uh, is it is it like, not to take away from it being like a nice looking shoe, like in a vacuum, it would be a great shoe. Mm-hmm. But you also you cannot forget that the Chicago one exists, right? Correct. So as someone that owns the Chicago Black Toes and that Chicago White Heel one, uh, the reason behind it, number one is I, was, I didn't even try for the OGs. And number two is the resale is so astronomically high. Oh, it's ridiculous. So let, let, let's take resale away. Let's say MSRP. If you were able to cop the OG highs in the Chicago versus the mids, I would go with the highs for sure. We're talking retail. But once we get into the secondary market and you got to do all this, that is actually why I opted for, for, for those two pairs. I'm just like, will I ever wear them? Not sure. Uh, but I think they're a, a cool colorway. And I think with mids, personally for myself, you can't wear them like highs. I think highs, you, you want to show off the tongue. You want to show off that collar and everything. With mids, yeah. <laughs> if anything, I will not show it. I have my pants 
like sitting below that area to make it not look you know like like a like a dwarf i'm sorry if that's politically incorrect but you know it does look a little you know dwarfed it looks like a dwarfed og high which is yeah. basically what it yeah. is yeah which also begs the question why would you get the mid when you can just get a jordan one low if you're gonna do that Ooh. okay so why didn't i get the jordan that's a good question uh number one i wanted to get the green pair i wanted to get the uh kentucky's i think did he come out with kentucky's what was that the dunk uh i think it's a dunk uh, what, but, but, syracuse in Syracuse. Shit. My sneaker. <laughs> one of them. One of one these. Of them. But basically, I did try for a few of the lows. Uh, just, I just couldn't get them. And I didn't want the lows in white or black, which just look a little boring. Um, but with, in terms of the lows, I don't know. With low low cut shoes, I like my Air, Air Force Ones. So I guess that never really came into mind. Um, but with the mids, I mean, that that's kind of my take. Do you hate them? Like, you can be honest. I really don't care. I love opinions. I love shared thoughts. So you can tell me, like, hey, those are trash or, like, they're not I mean, I don't same. hate them. I just wouldn't buy them. Okay. Gotcha. It's very it's very rare for me to, like, man, I hate this shoe or, like, I hate this product because ultimately a product just might not be meant for me as a consumer, which is fine. Mm-hmm. Right? I'm, one thing I, I kind of think about is... I kind of get you in terms of like the Chicago colorways saying, you know, you can't just borrow, you know, a colorway from the highs, change it up a little or subtract something and say and present it. Because I kind of felt that same way with the uh, with the mids that kind of that looked like the union ones. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I felt that way. And and I know that they also use suede by the collar and like around the shoe. So that's, you know, I can kind of know I kind of know where you're coming from. Whereas with the Chicago, I feel like I, and this is just me justifying, I'm, I'm so compelled by those colorways and they were so easy to buy that I'm just like, hey, I'm just going to grab it. It was 150 Canadian, which is next to nothing, right? For something. So like two USD. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so like for a notable colorway um, and just for like the history of, of those color combos, I'm like, okay, I'll just grab it. Uh, my opinion, though, I don't hate them. I've seen people with um, mids on, uh, and a majority of them, they like showing the whole shoe off. Maybe that's just because mm-hmm. we were in summer, where people, you know, were still wearing those skinny jeans, and like you, you see the toe, you see the collar, and it looks off. Where I feel like where you can really get creative with uh, mids, or where you can get really stylish, is with a straighter cut pant, is with a wider cut pant. Something in that caliber, and I know I'm hitting more the notes of like the hidden NYs of the world and kind of like the whole Jown aesthetics, but that's how I feel like it can really work without feeling like, oh shit, like those are mids, that's whack. Oh, you know what mid that came out? I think it was not too long ago. Those super multicolored like patchwork. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Those ones are sick. Did you like the Paris and Milano? No, no, I think it was Milano that was the mid, the pinkish one with the corduroy. Yeah. I like those ones because like those are coming off like I believe the Paris one was coming off like the Air Dior colorway. <laughs> sort of. Right? <laughs> sort of a little bit Air Dior colorway. Yeah. But the Air Dior colorway, one, Air Dior is technically not retailed by Jordan. That's true. Have you right? seen a pair? Two. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. A D plus. Um, <laughs> yeah. They're okay. Um the uh Air Dior, you know, not retailed by Jordan, um, is a collaboration. Clearly not a Jordan, not really like 
a Jordan product. Like I really wouldn't classify it as a Jordan product at this point. It's more so a Dior and, product in your mind. Yeah, it's more like a Dior product that was collaborated with Jordan than a Jordan product because you see through the marketing material, and who knows if the, how true this is, made by Dior in Dior facilities, retailed by Dior. Right? Like, not really a Jordan product at that point. Um, that's one. Two, it's at a price point and exclusivity factor where it's not, like, it really is not achievable for a mortal human being to own and wear those <laughs> shoes. Um, Facts. You know, like $20,000. Um go buy yourself a used ap right oh definitely um, better investment right? too better right investment. better investment but still it's like um i think the uh, the paris was far enough removed from the dior and the dior is far enough removed from reality that that's more okay okay i gotcha i know i, I like those guys too because they came out with um mids and lows i believe in the paris and milano I really liked it because of the fabrics that were used. It wasn't traditional. I think I think they did have some corduroy or some sort of yeah. you know, synthetic leather or leather on there. That's why it really intrigued me. I tried the raffle for end clothing, did not get it. So I was like, okay, whatever. I really try I not get those either. I really try not to buy things resale. It's kind of like if I get them retail, great. If I don't, it's okay. There are a ton of more shoes um, in my lifetime. Yeah. There's more shoes coming out. You're probably, you might forget about these ones that come out. Like, it's not a huge deal. Yeah, we're, end of the day, it's a shoe. Exactly, but I feel like in our other hobby with watches, sometimes you do feel that anxiousness because you're like, I know the, this watch is great. If I don't have on the opportunity, then what if they don't launch it again? Or what if you know the wait list really starts to increase? Where I think that's really like the difference in the in in the in the hobby is one of them. There's always going to be more. Always going to be in abundance. Yeah. I just moved the mic. Um, and then yeah. the second one is, ooh, I don't know if there's going to be more. How exclusive is this, is this going to be? Yeah. You know, yeah. stuff like that. I think this is a function of the vapidness and, like, the, 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 the pace of both of these industries. You know, Jordans come out every week. Watches come out maybe once a year. Yeah. And I think... Significant launches. For sure. And I think if we were to start to see watches... Uh, I think it wouldn't make sense for those listening. It wouldn't make sense for watch companies to constantly shove watches watches in your face because those are higher ticket items, right? Especially yeah. w when we talk about, you know, uh, good movements or some sort of good caliber. We are talking about starting at $1,500. I think that's a fair price for a, yeah. a decent watch, you know, um, not to sound snobby, but that's why it wouldn't make sense. You're not going to drop two G's, you know, every week, uh, unless you are really that, that baller. Then you really got it like yeah, that. Then, like, damn. Then that's something I can't say. I'm going to move over to watches now. Um, coming home, basically I was scrambling, great, trying to get everything together, have this makeshift kind of mic stand in front of me. And I found a book. Uh, really interesting book, and I think I really want to share this story with you. Um, the book I'm talking about is actually the Hodinkee magazine, uh, and this is uh, volume number five. Pretty great. Uh, I haven't read through all of it, but it's got a lot of great um, photography when it comes to watches. Great stories. That's what I'm about. Also, a lot of friggin' ads. Anyways, um, most people I know, when you see a, Ho a Hodinkee magazine, you're going to think, okay, um, you order it online or anything. Um, how do you think I acquired this? I'm just going to see if, if you could take a guess. It's very unorthodox. 
it got mailed to you by Hodinkee. Ooh, wouldn't that be a sight? Uh, ben Clymer knows who I am and, and kind of gives me one. No, I did the opposite of supporting um, a brand or supporting a company. Um, really? Yeah, this was on a trip um, to, to the States. And I was thankful that the person I was traveling with has access to airport lounges. So in the nice. airport line, I know, we went inside, got some food, got some drinks, you know, I looked around um, and I was like, hey, they actually have all these like av small aviation clocks that look like, you know, actual aviation instruments in their like cockpit. I, th I forgot who issued them. I want to say it was either, I think it was IWC. So they had, the, they had all these IWC um, aviation style uh, clocks and then right below it, happened to be a magazine stand magazine stand had your national geographics your vogues all of that stuff to my surprise i saw three copies of this and i oh, just, just snatched it and i'm just like oh shit nice so i was reading it on the spot corner of my left eye i see some guy you know he's on his way out he takes like three magazines shoves it in his <laughs> suit like suitcase i'm like Oh, is this the like access you get? And long story short, that's what I did. I literally grabbed it. I read it, and I was like, "Okay, well, if he did, I'm taking I'm this. you home." <laughs> yeah, I'm taking this with me. Uh, so this is probably going to be the only Hodinkee magazine I'll ever own. Not to say I don't want to like support them, but um, these are quite quite the price. Yeah, not cheap. Not cheap, uh, but that isn't to say that you shouldn't support them. If you do have the funds to do so, please pick up these magazines. Uh, they are, you know, photographic beauties, uh, and you can learn quite a bit about watches and, and cultures in general just by reading this. I think a few fashion people have been uh, featured in Hodinkee mag magazines. Uh, Absolutely. Yeah, I know Ronnie Feig from, from Kith has, for sure. After our boy John Mayer has one hundred percent. Oh, true. Yes, yes, yes. You know he's a he's a writer for them or something. You know what I think about um, with John Mayer? As much as he has so many elusive watches, I can never take the original Black Bay with the red bezel. It, it for me that watch is connected to him because he wrote that article on Hodinkee and he had like the guitar and like he did it on stage. That that's what I think of. A lot. And I love that Maybe you should get one. You should get one. <sighs> 42 millimeters. It's 41. 40, oh, 41. Uh, I thought about it, but the... the Where's like a 40? The 58 is a lot slimmer. <laughs> you do own the 58, so there's no point. Like, really, you're, you're like buying into the same watch. Yeah. Both modern, like... Arguably not the greatest idea. Um... <laughs> Would I do it E2? No, I wouldn't do that. No. I wouldn't do it. I tried on a 58 the other day. Yeah. Um, great watch, but it was on a fabric, so I didn't. It doesn't sing to me. Okay. Um, did you did, so, did you have a chance to ever try out a blue variant or see the blue variant? No. no. Never. I've seen it. Um, looks good. It does look good. Um, yeah. I rescind my statement of it looking too much like a Pelagos blue. Oh. I, it's I said that before. It's very different. So what's funny is I would actually, if I were to think of a next purchase, I would go with a Pelagos left hand. Mm, that's creamy indexes. Looks really good. I think my main attraction, and uh, this is where you'll learn a lot about me uh, for all the listeners, is I always like the thing that is different. 
or looks odd. So the fact that now we have the crown on the left side, that that to me is like amazing. Second thing, what I love about it, and this is not just uh, exclusive to the Pelagos left hand. If you're listening to this, Google Tudor Pelagos or Pelagos LHD. That is what I'm talking about. Um, what I love about that watch is the bracelet. That bracelet is mm. is it's so, so good. The Pelagos cool. bracelet is amazing. So cool. Have you had a chance to to play with one? Have you had a chance yeah. to try it out? I've yeah. played with the Pelagos a bunch of times. I love the bracelet. Um, the bracelet tech is amazing. Like it has the clasps and uh, that variable stretch. The variable thing. extension for the um, for the dive suit has like an extension as well, and then it has micro adjustments. What's really cool, and this might make you want the uh, LHD a bit more, is that LHD pelagos is uh, actually numbered so each one is numbered individually no other pelagos is numbered like that damn and it comes with a kit too it comes with the bracelet and the nato oh yeah no rubber right rubber strap. rubber pelagos comes with rubber that's what is intriguing to yeah. me and that's so the lhd is uh it has that numbered aspect which is really interesting so we have the numbered aspect we have some creamy uh numerals we have an amazing bracelet and we have the fact that it's different. And the last thing, and those are four points, is I'm actually left-handed. There you go. Perfect. <laughs> so maybe down the line, it's, it's going to be something I consider. I don't think it's at a terrible price. I think it's at a very That's accessible a price. price. Um, and it's for- also a manufacturer movement, in-house movement. Ah. For Tudor. Yeah. Okay. Now you know. Damn. Damn. Pelagos, great dive watch. Damn. Look at this this man is a is a wealth of knowledge. Hey, yeah. Um, I have a quick question, and maybe this can help some of the viewers out. Uh, if you were to suggest a watch for under five thousand dollars, what would it be? Within the 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 Tudor lineup, because you can't get any Rolexes that low at RP. Within the Tudor lineup, um, it really depends on like what the what the end user wants right if you want something with a little bit more classic and it's still technically impressive um then tudor glamour double date is amazing um underappreciated in you know like watch enthusiast um spheres but glamour date really good especially in steel um steel with blued hands and markers so it has an in-house double date mechanism similar huh. to a Lunga one yeah, you didn't I, expect that one, did you? I did not, man. I had my preconceived notions of what you'll say, but I did not. And I have, you, um, you got it right, because I have overlooked that. I've overlooked yeah, that. that's great. I've seen, I'm just like, yeah, I'm more attracted to the sport watches, but great suggestion. Yeah. What's another one you would, that you would one. give people? New to- Tudor Royal. Ah, see, I, I thought you were going to say that. That was like the first one I yeah. thought you were going to say, Tudor Royal. Tudor Royal is great. Um, The new one in 41 i believe the, the sizes um has a date and date like a date like a date, date um bracelet's good bezel is interesting um it's reminiscent in my eyes of um oyster quartz which is super cool those for those listening or oyster quartz is basically uh rolex i think in the 80s is that fair to say um late 80s yeah i was like like 70s. Okay, 70s. Early 70s. Okay, early 70s. Um, quartz crisis time, basically. Yeah, during that whole quartz crisis that our friends uh, Seiko so happily started 
uh, so to speak. Uh, Rolex also started to engineer some quartz movements. It came out with a bunch of watches called the uh, Rolex Oyster Quartz. Those, I think, are amazing value. Um, look on Chrono 24. Chrono 24, for those listening, think of like a grailed, but a lot... I don't want to say old-fashioned, but a lot more standardized, less messy, and four watches. That's what Chrono 24 yes. is. Yes, that's, that's good disruption of uh, Chrono 24. <laughs> also, under, under five, it was under 5K, right? Yeah. Black Bay, Dark, the PBD. See, I, I do like that one. So sick. There's There's something really sporty and tough and, like, hyper masculine about it and that's kind of what draws me to that watch yeah it's so cool i'm actually going to double check the price on this one that i want to shed some light on because not a lot of people know about this watch and they i think it's so cool see my only um, drawback darius while you kind of look this up is um the size is an issue thickness of the case is the issue for me that's all it is for, for yeah. black bay for, for the black oh. for that range yeah this one's a little bit over budget. It's five seven eighty Canadian. Yeah. Fast Rider Black Shield. Um, but what's funny is I would actually I like that more than the and maybe I'm going to get some hate from the, from the watch enthusiasts listening to this um, than the ceramic uh, Omega Speedmaster. A hot take, maybe. It's a very um, hot take, um, because <laughs> and this kind of this doesn't really matter. But it's because there's something about the legibility of the original variant of the Speedmaster yeah. that I think is makes sense. I think in terms of craftsmanship, yeah, the the, the Omega Speedmaster in, in that ceramic is is 100% better, right? It's a 100% better watch, but also much more expensive, right? Uh, yeah, I think it is it in the 10 or 12 or even more. Yeah, it, it's substantially more. Okay, never mind. Um, but I, I like it because it's also accessible too for the Black Bay. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah, Black Bay is great. That those are those would be my top three. Um, double de- glamour, double date, royal, and then um, PVD dark. Um, Fast riders a little bit, <laughs> tiny bit out of budget. Uh, for I want to go back to the royal really quickly. Does that come in different sizes? Is there like a thirty four, like a thirty six? Yeah, yeah. Um, it comes in four sizes. Oh, wow, four sizes. I believe, Holy crap. Yeah. Uh, 28. 28. 34. Mm-hmm. 38. 41. Ah, see, I, I think I would like that watch into 34. <laughs> Maybe a little bit. Too small? I think that's a little bit. I think that's a little bit too small. Okay, 38. I think then. so. Maybe it'd have to be a 38. 38's good. I would do the 41 just so I can get the date and day. Uh-huh. Because the other um, variants, they or, couldn't fit that, right? No, yeah, exactly. They couldn't fit, fit the uh, the Com- day the complication. indicator. Yeah. Exactly. What were, you, what, were you, what were you just going to say? They come out with a mother of pearl dial on the royal. Which is... Uh, <sighs> right? That's a, that's a heavy hitter. That's a good one. Only on the 38, though. Well, it's not on the 41. I was literally on the website right now. Um, Do you think... Rolex, I mean, sorry, what not Rolex? Tudor. Do you think Tudor is gonna somehow end up being the new Rolex eventually in like ten years, twelve years? I think 
I think Tudor, so originally Tudor was always meant to be um, more accessible than Rolex. That has been the ethos forever. Yeah, let, let me, um, let's take a step back. Darius, do you mind telling people <laughs> who exactly Tudor is? How it kind of came about? Just like a brief, small history, and then we'll kind of yeah. roll it into, you know, what I just said. So Tudor was built, is owned by uh, Rolex. It actually operates out of the same facilities as Rolex. And it was imagined as a brand in 1926 by founder Hans Wolsdorf as a brand to sell Rolex quality watches at a more accessible price point. And the way they did that was by having Rolex parts but not Rolex movements, largely. I mean, this is in the past. And movements were were and are the most expensive parts of a watch now. Um, so that's how, is they, that's how they cut costs and managed to deliver the same reliability as Rolex. What's really interesting is that in the beginnings of Tudor, um, which is also coincidentally the beginnings of Rolex, um, Hans Wolfdorf said that he gives the blessing to the Tudor brand to use um, the Rolex Oyster case and perpetual winding rotor, um, which is why now we have we would we would later see you know Tudor Oyster prints and perpetuals. So Tudor was always meant to be sort of the the entry into Rolex. How it's been explained to me is that Rolex, the coronet of Rolex, is the king, and then the Tudor shield is the knights of the kingdom that you enter through. And Tudor, just for fun fact, the Tudor name comes from the English royal Tudor name. And that is why it is named Tudor, because Hans Wolfsdorf really admired English monarchy. <laughs> yes, that, that's one thing that was, I think that's really funny about the Tudor brand, is, is Hans's uh, you know, love for, for British royals and, and all of that. So Tudor... I believe it's such an underappreciated brand, especially for a lot of Rolex buyers, where they think I must have Rolex, but and nothing else. Hmm. So, to my question is, do you think with the rise of this, because I mean, the original Black Bay came out what six years ago? Close to five, five to eight. Close to. Let me say five to eight yeah. as a range, because I don't yeah. even know myself. Yeah. Um, I, I, I don't know off top. So with that resurgence, it really gave them a boost up because prior to that, when I'd look at Tudor, is nothing really stood out. I would always, to, to the watch you said actually, I would look at the Prince Oyster Oyster date or the Prince Day date, or I would look at the you know I would dream of the oyster um, of the Tudor Submariners because back then, even within those watches, you could get a signed crown that had the coronet. That's yes. what was very appealing to me as well. Yeah, you might have an ETA, you know, or like some other movement in there, but the case and the crown was still of the bigger bigger brother or the parent company. So that was that was attracting. Once the Black Bay came in and then with the vintage vintage aesthetic, I'm like, "Oh, I'm going to pay more attention here." As we're now progressing and we see the GMT, now we see the 58, we see the Harrods edition, the, the green variant, right? Um, and then we have the Tudor Royal. It's like, I love the energy that they're coming out with. I'm also scared that we will soon not be able to attain Tudor within 12 years. I don't think so. No? I don't think so. Not within 12 years. I think, no, no. I think 
Rolex ultimately is very, very intelligent with how they position their brand. If Rolex becomes more and more luxurious and, you know, a little bit more removed from the working class um, population as a buying demographic, they would want to maintain Tudor, from my understanding, as, you know, the, the accessible entry point. I don't think it's worth it for them to to make Tudor inaccessible. But do you think we'll ever see the Black Bay go up to a point of 7,000, 8,000? On, on RRP, I should say. There are models that are getting up there. Um, you know, if you have a steel and gold Black Bay chronograph, it's up there. That's true. You're getting close. Okay. Yeah. So, I, Tudor, I believe, will always be the accessible entry point into the, the, the these two brands. Okay. That, that kind of uh, answers... Answers that I, I that's just one thing that I, I'm scared of because we saw for those listening Rolex wasn't always this highbrow luxury you know brand or the staple I think the the turning point was the aluminum bezel going into ceramic for the Rolex Submariner that was really the point where like oh something's shifting in this brand right they started just they started they started maybe they started positioning to be more you know highbrow but. At the end of the day, it's still a quality product, and oh, the definitely. pricing is very strong, right? Yeah, I mean, Submariner for RRP, I have to say, is the best watch in that category. Plus, minus three thousand dollars. I don't exactly. care. If that is really such a great watch to have as your everyday, and for you to beat around. Speaking of great watch, yes, that just came out. The Oris, ooh, with that movement, okay, so, so good. Can you explain this one? I am. I'm a big fan of. You're Oris. so excited. I'm a big fan of Oris, uh, and this is where I'm going to have to have you come in because I, I, I actually saw it on LinkedIn. Funny enough, I didn't see it on Instagram. I follow Oris on LinkedIn, and they announced that they were coming out with um, a new um, Aquis, right? Aquis, yeah, a, a new Aquis with a brand new movement, and I got super excited because. That watch, I uh, believe you can get a regular Aquis for about like the $2,000 range, $2,500, $3,000, which I think is a crazy deal because I know when I was looking at watches, I thought about Oris's versus Tudor's, and eventually I did go to the Tudor, but Oris has so much value in it, and they've got a watch for everyone. They have so many different styles, um, you know, from, from their pointer date that they're known for. But back to the quiz, it's a new movement. Why it's very exciting is um, they used to always use, uh, Oris used to always use other movements, be it an ETA or I think even Salida movements at, at one point, yeah. right? So now we're starting to see what I first caught my eye was the in-house movement. As I did a little more digging, and this didn't like hinder the hype or anything, I'm still very excited for it. I love this release. Now they've got, you know, I, I, I always like their bracelets as well, how they're integrated. Um, in, integrated in a sense. Uh, but what I loved is this in-house um, element and how they've kind of, you know, and what's funny is it came out after the podcast we talked about, not saying we had anything to do with it. We talked about in-house movements. We talked about off the shelves. Now it's an introduction of a new term by in-house designed movement. But right. Mm -hmm. uh, but I think it's still very exciting. Uh, tech specs, Darius, do you have that information? Because I, it's not coming. I was yeah, just it's not it coming up. to my head at all. 
So it's the Caliber 400 for the Horus Aquadiver 400, I believe it is. Um, but here we go. Five-day five, power yes, reserve. Yes, sorry. That was what, what was so exciting. Okay, five-day power reserve. Let me hone on this first. For those listening, if you have an Apple Watch, you can always recharge it. You're never going to have to worry about um, you know losing the time because every night you might put it beside your head. I don't know. I don't have those practices. With the watch, and especially when you have more than one, what happens is if you stop wearing a watch nowadays – I'm sorry, not nowadays. If you stop wearing your watch, let's say within 40 hours or 70 hours – yeah, 48 yeah. to 70 hours typically. It would just, right? you know, stop at that time. And then when you pick it back up, similar to the Hamilton, is okay, now I have to set the time again, wind it, make sure it's good. Okay, I'm ready to wear it. But what this movement brings in this new in house design movement is a five day power reserve. Imagine taking off your watch. And I know that might be hard. Is you're taking off your watch and you're going back to it right. on the fourth <laughs> day and it's still running. That is crazy. Yeah. So it keeps yeah. going, right? It keeps going. So it has a silicon hairspring. Um, hairspring. It has 2250 Gauss magnetic resistance. So why is that important for for, for those listeners? It just make, ensures that it stays accurate throughout um, going a day, going throughout your day. Should it ever be magnetized, which it shouldn't because of that resistance. What's really amazing to me, right, is Aura's Baxis movement so much. Because a lot of people think, you know, you're going to make this movement and make all these claims and then you're not going to get really into it and not really back it because you make claims but not substantiate them. They're backing this with a 10-year warranty, which is ridiculous. That is crazy. Imagine that, okay, if you're listening to this, the, the brand, the watch brand has so much faith in its movement that it will do what it says, that you are backed by 10 years. Tell me all, tell me a shoe that backs you after one day. None. Nothing. <laughs> Tudor is five? Is it five year? Or yeah. Damn. I almost feel like the more expensive you go, the less the warranties are gonna stay as long. But yeah, the less they really but, care. The what's yeah. what's really interesting, right? For this Oris pointer date, it is at the Oris price point, right? For all of this tech spec, for what is it, three thousand dollars? Three thousand dollars on yeah. 3300 on rubber USD. So, US, so I'm going to say this outright. Because I don't want people to think we're just Rolex AP fanboys. That Oris is a better value than my 58. Prove me wrong. Mm, damn. Prove me wrong. Arguably a different product. <sighs> okay. Diver, diver. In-house design. In-house movement air quotes okay how that that's where it kind of i i drew that from it just kind of blurted it out diver diver in-house in-house so how how would it be a different product i think it's a different product because the black bay 58 and a lot of black bay line is vintage inspired capable watches definitely um but they're not designed to be you know the ultimate dive watch what would be a fair, more fair comparison to, to this new Aorus then? 
if we were staying in Tudor, it would be Pelagos. But you also have to keep in mind that Pelagos was launched quite a ways <laughs> before this Oris. Okay. Huh. Right. It's like comparing a 2017 model to a 2020. It's sort of not that fair. That is not fair. You're right. Who knows? Maybe, maybe they're developing the Tudor Pelagos 2 that's coming out with a six-day power reserve, whatever, right? So that would be the comparison as of a pure product to the Black Bay is not a direct comparison. Okay. I think. Okay. You, you are right. Um, it, it's kind of more bare bones, true to, you know, the story ruggedness, whereas the other one is a little more dive focused. The 58 is really vintage inspired. I can't think of a parallel, but for that price, damn, that is good. It's strong. It's really strong. It's also incredibly impressive being Oris, and they've made a commitment to continue using um, Edo movements in their other watches to maintain a price point, which is super, super good. We don't want every brand to start going into like $10,000 five-figure price points because then no one will buy it. Yeah, them. and you know what's kind of scary? The the moment you said we don't want every watch company going into the 10000 mark is that's what scares me about today's um, Seiko strategy is like seeing these vintage-inspired Seikos. Not saying they're not worth it, but they're going for quite a high price. And I'm just yeah, like, they start edging and I'm just kind of like, ah, oh. so is it fair for me to maybe compare a, a Seiko, you know, in that range, like maybe like a Marine Master or whatever, the SB, whatever, to an Oris? And maybe that's a more better, that's a better comparison. I think so. Um, although Oris is still like significantly smaller of a brand. I guess Seiko would have the economy. Yes. But I feel like you can't get that spring drive in in the seiko unless you're paying paying for the pretty penny but then now i'm thinking oh, yeah. spring drive or what do i get this or is i would kind of want a spring drive more than that uh i don't know i would get the spring drive I would. Get spring okay drive. bad comparison <laughs> uh are we continuing hot yeah. takes because there is a very spicy one in the automotive world that I wanted to get your thoughts please. on. Please. And like explain to you how yeah, spicy it is. Please explain to me because I am not in the automotive world other than Cybertruck. <laughs> ultra spicy, ultra spicy, hot off the press. There was a claimed record of the world's fastest production vehicle. Fastest pro- uh, can, you, can you run through that fastest production? Is that like from the time they need to build it? No, what does that mean for those listening? So production vehicle means, you know, a car that, in theory, you could go and buy and drive on the road. Okay. So, you know, like fully tested, safety, um, okay. stuff like that. You know, a real vehicle you could buy and drive on the road. Whether or not one accessible by price point or availability is up for debate. But, you know, in theory, you could buy and drive. That's what a production vehicle is because... Otherwise, we will get experimental vehicles that have, like, rocket engines on them. And there you go. There's your yeah, fastest vehicle yeah. on there. So, like, road tested um, and, so, and road certified. Okay. Exactly. Exactly. So, fastest production vehicle, which is, you know, a really... It's a super important thing for um, a certain demographic of car buyers because some people just want to have the fastest car in the world. So, I don't have the numbers exactly that to compare it to, but I know the number for this one. So, the claimed record was 331 miles per hour which is like 500 plus kilometers right ridiculous so before that 
was the Bugatti 300, Chiron 300 plus. I'm actually going to search up how much it was. Um, I think that was like 307 or something like that. Like it was like 300 and a bit, like a tiny bit. So to make that leap to 331 is a huge difference, you know, like 10% yeah. difference. You know what's funny? I can't say and anything it, about like the fastest it, it can go because that's like me saying, why do you need a five-day power reserve? It's impressive. You want exactly. it. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. Continue. It's impressive for the sake of being yeah. impressive. Yeah. And... And what's really interesting is that as you go faster, it becomes harder and harder to go faster because drag and how physics works. So basically making this leap of 10% and 30, kilometers, 30 miles per hour is massive because it represents like a way more efficient design. Now, in the beginning, I said it was claimed. What happened was the SSC America company I forget what exactly what it stands for, but they had this car called the Tuatara and they claimed the speed and they had a video with telemetry data claiming the speed and they showed the run. Unfortunately, they videoed the run and people started questioning it because where did you make this 10% leap of a... Uh, Your phone uh, keeps blowing uh, up. Speed? You got to mute that. <laughs> I know. I know. It's uh, So you get this 10% leap in speed. What happens is that because this is such a massive leap, people start investigating this video. And what they found was that by counting line, uh, line markers in the road, and when they conducted this test on a U.S. highway, which is heavily mandated, you know, you're going to have a certain amount of space for each white line, then it's like a certain amount of space before the next one, then you know exactly how far you've gone. And they could see like certain medians inside the video where they could use Google Maps and figure out within like a reasonable margin of error of how fast this car was going. So that there was damning evidence from that. And two, another damning evidence is that another company did a record breaking run at the time on the same piece of road. So what people did is they counted how many um, markers yeah. they passed in this time and they used basic yeah. physics to figure or basic mathematics to figure out how fast they went they ended up getting like 280 miles per hour instead of what they reported instead of reporting 331 and then people overlaid these two videos with that run i said was on the same road and you know you're reporting a differential of like 60 miles mm -hmm. per hour between these two runs the older car was faster oh. the, the video was shorter Right? Oof. Damn. Big oof. So what now, happens now? It, it gets really spicy. Because, oh, it gets even spicier. <laughs> so SSC, to get these runs um, verified, you have to, you know, get third-party verification with GPS tracking and, you know, like, say, Guinness records or whatever. They use a company called Duatron, or Duvatron, um, and they said, oh, we had their tech in our car and they verified the run. And that was an official press release. What makes this super and ultra spicy is that that GPS company came out with another press release saying, we were not there. We were not present. We do not verify this Damn. run. I know, right? That comes with and well, now, the validity of, of that of that brand has kind of gone down. And same with the testing. No? Yeah, so yeah the testing is all gone and now they're on fire and they've recently said like oh yeah the results may have been 
not accurate, we will do a second run. Whether or not that actually matters doesn't really matter anymore because no one has faith in yeah, the brand. Yeah, so what happens now with the, that's what I was curious about. What happens now with the brand? Have they released like a public statement? Have they gone silent? Are they addressing it? Are they not addressing it? Are they, yeah, we'll do it again and we'll show you guys or, or, or what? They uh they said that they will do it again and invite people to come out and verify and get in contact with all these many people. But this is what's really interesting to me, right? In this realm of like hyper cars, people purchase these cars and it's not like you buy it on January 1st and it arrives January 15th and you pick it up and you go. You know, it this takes years. So you might buy it January 1st, 2015 and it arrives like 2017. What happened, and this is speculation, but people purchased, you know, that Bugatti that recently broke the record and Verified broke the record because it's the fastest car in the world. Imagine being that buyer and seeing this record come out, alleged record come out. What do you do? You wanted the fastest car in the world. Is there a lawsuit? Exactly. Now... Go on the other side. Say you got this car that now had just claimed the 331 miles per hour, the fastest time. And now all this controversy comes up. Yeah, I think the first thing I... What happens to you? Yeah, what happens to your credibility as a buyer? Oh, jeez. This is just no good for it's no any good for part anybody. of the supply chain. None. Oh, gosh. And that was the spicy story of the automotive world last week. Damn. You got to keep me up. I want to see, like, if there are lawsuits, I'm interested in that. So you got you to gotta throw it my way. I want to see if there's a lawsuit, what's going to happen to this brand. What's going to happen to, like, the, the testing measures, right? I know. I wasn't even, um, like, interested. And then I saw it on YouTube. I'm like, oh, my God, this is the most important thing in the world for this Damn. week now. I don't care about anything else. Damn, that's almost like if cost there was like a big issue or like you know some sort of exactly. testing parameter for watches um if you were to i guess you know get some really odd looking shoe that shouldn't have passed the past the quality test that is that makes your brand look really bad first and foremost exactly and now everybody who will ever in the future do a top speed attempt is going to be so questioned and like highly speculated oh for sure yeah, so imagine like a brand and watch like claims an accuracy, like say like the Seiko accuracies of like one second yeah. a year. Imagine like you have that watch and then a month into ownership, it's off by five yeah. minutes. That's kind of like not yeah. good. You lose not a good. customer for life from that, and you could have the same for this for this company. What? How? Now, how granted, much did this car retail for? I have okay. no idea. It doesn't really matter. It's like $1.5 million oh, or something. <laughs> so like the amount of people affected, like what, 30 people? Yeah. It's just an interesting, uh, it's an interesting move because while it does only affect 30 people, the, um, the amount of dollars it represents for these companies is astronomical and like the movement of faith yeah. in the automotive industry. Integrity. So I think that's a big thing to highlight here. Integrity of of these companies is then lost exactly so now a lot of american automotive companies are like losing some of their credibility because they're all tied to this another american company damn well shit 
super interesting. I recommend every, like, viewer, listeners, not viewers, just read into it, like, and just watch the video, and it's, like, sort of suspicious. Yeah, I, I'm actually, I'm curious to see the video, um, and, like, the, the side-by-side comparison between the two. That's what I, that's kind of what I want to see when it comes to, like, this because stuff. In the video, you see like they go up to two hundred miles per hour, like at a at a very quick pace, but you know at a pace, and then from two hundred the claimed two hundred to three hundred plus, it looks like he was at half throttle. He just stepped on it more, and it just goes even faster, like it was nothing, which I don't think would be really yeah, accurate. Yeah, it wouldn't. Oh, um, I f- totally forgot this too. There's a uh, the third most damning piece of evidence or evidence against this okay. claim they were they were using a um a supplied gearbox and supplied wheels okay. it's like it's like people know the specs of these things because they're supplied and you can buy them yourself mm-hmm. applying a little bit of engineering mysticism yeah. you you can find how fast a car is going using gear ratios yeah. you know the size of the wheel and the yeah. power and they calculated that the max speed was not what they claimed there's some really smart people working in... And there's some smart people doing in some investigation work on the internet. some smart people stuff. That is... Wow. This, the, these YouTube sleuths and investigators don't doubt them. Isn't though. that crazy that um, because everyone can kind of chime into it, you have these specialists from like 5,000 miles away or like even greater, and they're just like, they can see it. Yeah, this doesn't make sense. Here's a reason why. And then there's like a whole sub reddit you could say just over exactly the bottom. that's what i love about youtube of like conf- of like confirming or like not confirming the, the evidence and like arguments given by these people i think it's so interesting so one side is like r.i.p that brand other side is that's really cool that internet sleuths actually got this right but i think another side of it is now there should be a new new uh you know testing standard or tester you know. I think there is. I think they're developing. I think Darius should develop one. Oh, I could do that. <laughs> well, in like, actually, now that you mention it, in like very relative relating news, you know how a lot of car make manufacturers will claim like, oh, fastest record on the Nurburgring Nordschleife. Yeah. You know, like, yeah, that's a thing that people do all the time, and they claim times and everything. A lot of records like that, especially older ones are not actually timed by the Nürburgring. They're actually timed independently by the car brand. So the Nürb- so the Nürburgring got really angry because one, it's missing out on profits and people are using its name for whatever reason. So now they're instating a standardized track and a standardized testing for anyone who wants to do a claim like this. That's smart. That's You need regulation. It gets deeper. It gets deeper because... This rabbit hole goes forever. Um, but the older records had a certain lap, and the starting point was not the same point as the end point. Now this new standard one is the same, so it's a little bit longer. Mm. So imagine being like Lamborghini. Yeah, right? and having all these your, great records throughout the years. Yeah, and your 2017 run was like, I don't know, I'm making this up, but 6 minutes 45 yeah. because it's a shorter track. But now the next run is like Seven. a 6 minutes yeah. 55, but it's a longer track. Doesn't sound no, as impressive. No, it doesn't. Doesn't at all. Damn. 
Have you ever thought about going to the to the automotive world? With your passions? I mean Lamborghini if you want to hire me. <laughs> let's go. Let's go. With your passions of you know of where to watches find me. and then with with the automotive industry too. I think it's just so interesting. No, it is. Know, um, I like I like the compliance and the regulation. Good. That's what's interesting to me. Yeah. I think it's so interesting because so many people are finding little, little bits of leeway to the gray make statements that yeah. might the gray area. But that's like us as a, as a, as not to get political, but that's like us as a society as well, as a culture, watches with, oh, yeah. with sneakers. I mean, with the whole like technology with, with sneakers and then I shouldn't say sneakers, uh, running and training shoes. And then with cars, it's, it's the same thing. It's like, here's a standard. How do I kind of beat around it and then still come out on top? How do I sort of like push the, push the yeah. limit? Exactly. How do I push the limit? That's, that's their goal. Getting into sneakers now. So, did you see the controversy between the uh, Nike Next Percent and runners? There was, what, what do you, the, the technology behind it and the, the mechanical doping, yeah. like that stuff? Yeah. Okay, that, that shit is... Your take on that. I need your take on that. <laughs> Look, if you boil it down... If I decide to run in Nikes and you decide to run in Adidas and I beat you because my shoe company has better technology, that isn't my fault. That is your fault for not wearing a shoe that gets you the extra boost and whatever, whatever, uh, boost, funny. But, <laughs> but my thing is, as a watch company, as a car company, as a, as a shoe company, your goal is to keep making better footwear. Your goal is to optimize, refine, and come up with the next best technology to help your user. With cars, it could be, you know, the engine, could be like whatever, all that stuff. With watches, it could be the movement, extending this, using this, you know, silicone instead of whatever. And then in shoes, it could be, okay, here on the forefoot, you have this new technology. Here, you're going to have more bounce. You're going to get, you know, more feedback from this because we've implemented this technology. The Runners Association or whoever the hell got pissed off at it should not be mad at a shoe company coming out with a sneaker that's breaking records. That does not make sense. That is their company goal. So why are you getting mad at them? When that came out, I thought it was bogus. It was so bogus. It was so stupid. And I'm, I'm passionate about this. And I, this is something I've been simmering on is how do you get mad that if you're an Adidas runner, you lost in boosts versus, you know, uh, a Nike runner, um, you know, winning in the in the in the next percents. Um, I think that's crazy to me. Does not make sense. You know, what's hilarious. That you would get mad at that's that. That's really funny. Yeah. There were some athletes sponsored by other brands that were buying the Nike Next Percent and blacking them out and yes. running them because they were they tried to get on the uh, even playing field with the Nike runners. Yes, if anything, this is what begs the question, what, what we call um, equality and equity. Equality is everyone in that race has a fair chance. They have shoes and they have training. Equity is, okay, everyone, you're going to wear the same shoes and you're going to go for it. Okay? So... You know, I don't blame them, but you can't... Number one, I think, as a runner, you can't get mad at Nike. Number two, as an association, you cannot get mad at Nike as well. That's like getting mad at, at, at a car company for breaking records. 
<laughs> you know, or like, oh, you're just telling everyone else to step their game exactly. up. Exactly. Or like, oh, like this driver, he decided to go with this, you know, car maker this year, and they're winning. Sue him. This is not right. What the? F- what? What have we come to as a society? To get ticked off at this. This is more like, for me, it's a reflection of, of our society and, and how something like that can come about. It is totally outrageous. Good on Nike for continuing to make the best shoes for athletes and for runners. That's all I got to say. Built by athletes for athletes. Yeah. It is. What is your take on it? I want to hear your opinion. I think I understand where like the, um, the athletic associations are coming from where you know some the nike shoes were not accessible to everybody especially in its prototyping phases yeah continue sorry but right right so in like a peer edward just made a face um as a peer competition and like as a peer sport um running is like the most egalitarian sport if you have feet you can run sorry people with no feet but cancelled. You know, I cancelled. <laughs> no more springs and thread because of people with no feet. But as a sport, you know as equipment progresses, I agree, you know, things become better and more efficient and athletes become better trained with better nutrition and, and training regiments. But all a lot of those things are accessible to everybody, provided you have the cash to do it. Um but a lot of athletes were getting mad at Nike or Nike athletes or their own companies for not allowing them to wear this shoe that provided a genuine advantage to these athletes. And what I think what really made this a huge controversy is when it became quantified how much of a mechanical advantage you got from the shoe. That's when like people were like, oh no, like we have to we have to cancel the shoe. Luckily Nike used it and was like, haha. Our shoe was so good, it got banned. Yeah, I feel like that was like the whole Michael Jordan airship and like Jordan 1 thing all over again. <laughs> exactly, the, the Jordan 1 thing all over again. But I think, I think um, Nike, this is like a problem with winning this. Um, this is a problem in a few sports. But essentially, as a company gets really good at a sport, or like a brand gets really good at a sport, they win more, right? Like, and then if you win more, you get more money from winning because you are winning more, right? That follows. And using that money that you've won by winning more, you can extend your advantage by developing and researching more and better products, thereby winning more. And and this like difference in winningness becomes a huge problem when you have something like this is a huge problem in formula one which i'm going to bring up cars again but basically mercedes has been winning for like the last seven years so their lead is ridiculous you know it's impossible to catch up especially if you're a smaller brand like to put it in perspective you know mercedes might be spending 400 million dollars a year on their on their team you know someone like say williams racing it's 100 million dollars a year including development right that extension of a lead becomes so great that competition becomes nullified. So maybe in this case with the shoe, they're afraid that the Nike lead, especially in shoes, you know, they come out so fast. This running lead might become so great that people are discouraged from accepting offers from other brands 
Um, other brands are discouraged from entering their athletes into com- into um, competitions where they know Nike athletes are going to be. And they're afraid that athletes might not want to sign up with their company because they just want to be a Nike athlete so they get this mechanical advantage. Do you know when you say that, and I, look, I know that's like, this This is like your your view on it, but what I see is almost like, is this the culture of here's your participation ribbon? Like either way, here here's a ribbon. From a from a perspective, and, and I get it too. Like you you bring up a good point. Is number one, it was in the prototype stage, right? And number two, um, you as a company, as another footwear company, you still want to attract athletes, and you're worried that this other person, you know, will be the monopoly for this brand. But I think the other perspective, and what I want to really hone in on, is then engineer better stuff, engineer technology that can get an athlete there it's a combination it takes two to dance it's a great runner with the great shoe that's benefiting from it it's not like if you put it on you're gonna break records not like if i put it on, i'm gonna break a record exactly no i'm not breaking any records right so if anything it's um said footwear company footwear company x who is our best runner right now who's the who are the top athletes okay now let's invest some more dollars and to see how do we optimize this athlete with our own footwear technology. And that's what I have to say about your point in terms of they're worried that what if you know other people don't, don't sign with other brands. But as a brand, maybe it's just my upbringing, but it's more of like a challenge. All right, Nike, if you're breaking records like that with this technology, I'm going to go buy one as research. I'm going to dissect it and I'm going to see exactly what is so special with your shoe and I may reverse engineer it or I'm just going to tune it up even better and we're going to take our best athlete and we're going to smoke you in the next one. That is my approach. I don't know if it's theirs, but that's how. Our competitive brand, you know where to find them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, th- I think that's, that's really, that should be the approach. Why? And take, to take a step away from sneakers is I'm worried that with this news flooding our timelines or flooding our, our feeds, especially now I actually read read news a lot more than I used to, is you're you're it's it almost seems like you're promoting the fact that losing is bad and then you have to whine about it. And I don't want to say that brands are whining about it, but to oversimplify, it almost feels like when someone wins, you gotta find out why they won and then try to see if there was like an unfair advantage sometimes i feel like um you know as a culture is you have to be okay with losing there are winners and there are losers so if you lose that's fine but pick yourself back up and say how do i do better next time instead of hey you're wearing those shrews that those should be illegal because there is quantifiable evidence that because you wore those you beat me by you know 0.7 seconds I don't think that's the right approach. I think as as a as a culture, as a society, we have to think whenever we have been defeated, we need to rise up and then we got to do better. That's how I'll kind of end it off. It, it, for me, the, the worry is not within the shoes. I think it starts there. For me, it's the worry about what is the impact of something like this happening and being publicized? And what is that saying about us and how to view winners versus losers? That's what I'm scared of. I think what wasn't publicized about this whole controversy was the actual outcome of what happened. 
Do you know what happened? What actually happened when they said they banned it? Um, so they banned it. Um, it was it was enacted. But what they did wasn't they they didn't say that they banned you know this shoe. What they said um, was actually really interesting and a really good approach. They they gave specified guidelines to like maximum thickness of cushioning and certain amounts of plates in like the midfoot which is true you know some brands might not have the tech to put do all this stuff but you know they have the capability you know manufacturing a prototype sneaker is not the most costly thing in the world it is definitely costly but you can't do it given guidelines it can be broken down what they said was that nike was using multiple um shank plates inside of its shoe and you know that was giving it was a it wasn't necessarily like a true quote unquote running shoe yeah because um, shanks are usually like, used in in boots for durability exactly yeah and it was it was providing a lot more spring and because it was a multiple shank and it was like in a prototype build as a production model they had to not have like three shanks inside the shoe or something like that and they just gave an outline it's like hey your shoe must confine within these guidelines and if you can make a better product within these guidelines go for it but if you are stepping out of the guidelines then no good so i i think ultimately nike released a shoe which was within the guidelines that people started wearing and no one could say anything about it because now there's a strict like this is what the shoe is and to draw the parallel back to formula one they do that they're doing that 2021 where they're changing you know their car is going to have these elements and this sort of nullified whatever development true development um advantage winning teams had because now they have to readjust everything yeah but so they get to keep the tech but what i don't like is that just because this happened then you need everyone like you're you're implementing new rules to it like what? What are your thoughts on that? Like I, I don't particularly. I like think that. I think it's good. I think it's fine, because I think this goes back also to like that to a Tara run. You know, at what point do you need like okay, we're gonna specify this is what is, um, valid for, this competition because ultimately this is like going down to being what a competition is and what is valid for the competition, so for the Tuatara run, you know, it has to be a production car. It has to be verified by one, two or more, I believe it's like two or more um, independent companies that are on site to calibrate their equipment. For F1, they have the, the strict guidelines of how the car can run, what the tires are, blah, 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 blah. For shoes now, for running at least, like long distance running now, they have the shoe must be, I don't know, half an inch thick in the forefoot, four tenths of an inch thick in the heel with a single shank, um, whatever you want to do with that. There you go. But how long ha- have the rules have not been changed? I almost see it. Look- Literal forever, right? 
but I think my parallel especially for running alright so at this point this of the podcast unfortunately uh, Darius's audio device did cut out we weren't able to get his responses so this last half is kind of me just talking to myself but regardless uh, thanks for even listening this long stay tuned for the next podcast I promise that we will do better the chances of the MMA fighter winning are going to be higher because they have more skills they have more tools to their advantage right and then that that's why okay just just to say like that's why i'm all for the sports the sport of mixed martial arts because they, ha- they have all these tools let's see how well you do of course there's exceptions no soccer kicking to the head knees elbows at a certain degree like certain you know positions but i think with running it's sh- i i don't like that idea it should be hey I understand your, your your point of view too is sometimes when you set guidelines you can get really creative and you might come up with a better product but I also think with the ingenuity and the innovation is you cannot you you can end up stunning some sort of design or some sort of innovation especially when it comes to the regulated sport and I I do think that um, I in my opinion I don't like that rule I just flat out don't like it I think Brands should be innovating um, to their max potential, and it, it it can go you know a, a millimeter thicker. It can be more than three shanks because if that's is what will improve the athlete, and that's the ethos, and that's kind of the value of the brand, then that's what you should do. And I'm just saying this more in terms of like um, the the innovation aspect and and the sport aspect, right? Because I I don't think it's fair it starts with running and what if someone gets the idea to implement this in basketball what if someone gets the idea to implement this into another sport and say if it requires you know um, that kind of feedback from your feet for you to be more responsive then that's not fair that on the court he got that much advantage to do a fast break and that's how he he scored the extra you know extra point with the two points there Whereas me wearing my said brand, I didn't have that advantage. So those get, you know what I mean? Like, I think I, that's where I look at it. Thank you for listening. Um, and this, um, this Friday, I'm actually going to, you know, write up a little post. Um, I've always wanted to kind of find alternatives um, to certain things that I see on the marketplace. So this week I am dropping alternatives to the um, ALD Woolrich collaboration. Um, you can bet your ass I'm going to put some North Face in there because I do like North Face, North Face as a brand. And um, I'm not going to say they're going to be, you, you know, affordable, but they are going to be alternatives if you like that look. Um, as always, please um, like follow subscribe to the podcast on apple Podcasts, on spotify and google Podcasts. it really helps us out and i appreciate it if you can kindly also leave a review that does help out with the analytics and to spread the word of springs and thread um and as always please uh, if you are listening on these platforms follow um springs and thread on um, ig instagram and that's springs.thread we will uh, be back next week take care everyone